Welcome to No Challenges Remaining from December 2020. I'm Ben Rothenberg. The finish line of this weird, objectively terrible year is is in sight. And we're already looking ahead, looking past it to 2021, our 2021 vision for the world of tennis in the future. And we have wonderful sets of eyes assembled and, and mouths and ears to have a roundtable here and see our faves from the year 2020 introducing across the Zoom here. Let's start with our... NCR Middle East and North Africa correspondent Reem Abulail. Reem, welcome back to NCR once more. Thank you for having me. Next up is our Spain and Sub-Saharan African correspondent from The Guardian. It is Tumani Carriol. Tumani, hello. Hello. It's good to be back. And I was thinking, you don't have an official title yet, Gruskin, but you can get one on the spot here. I, I, I was just going to say, you were talking about wanting to do something about Hanukkah, chosen people correspondent. Our chosen correspondent. Does that, does that work? Something something appropriately Judaic? Alex Gruskin? I mean, I, in my own head, am the chosen one. It is always great to see you, of course, Ben. I will say, in the Thanksgiving spirit, I feel like I got the call up to the adult table. So it is great to join all of you. Just off the bat, Reem, hello. You know my feelings about you. It's great to get to finally do a show with you. To my knee, Ben, you're fine as well, but uh, let's have some fun. Let's look. I'll be the resident young person. There you go. Okay, youth correspondent. That's I still good. consider myself young, but there okay, it is. Ben. I was going to say, Tumani's always been the baby of, of the press room. So now that there's someone legitimately significantly younger than him, it's, it's wow. How do you feel, Tumani? I feel old, naturally. Yeah, good, good. Finally. <laughs> All right, so... You've made us feel that way forever. Yeah, yeah. it's about time. <laughs> it's about time. All right, so speaking of time, what time has the Australian Open happening? We're still not totally sure, but it seems now like the current plan is for it to start on February 8th, which is a week after it usually would be over. Like, this is a big shift in the calendar already. It's completely disrupted. We did, a, I did an episode an Australian reporter last episode we talking about Melbourne and their COVID listness and, and what they're willing to risk and not risk for that. And the current plan seems to be now, and it's not been official, but it's a lot of reports and the reports seem to be overlapping more and confirming each other more. So it seems like we're heading towards some sort of February Australian Open. Uh, this is causing a lot of disruption to the tennis calendar at large. I mean, putting an event this big pretty far away. It's like a three-week shift, really, or two, Yeah, whatever you want to say. It's a big shift. And also because it leaves a gap where it used to be, it also sort of vacates pretty much the whole month of January, as far as we're concerned. Maybe, we were talking about before the show, maybe ATP Doha, which is the first week of the calendar, maybe that still survives. But the rest of January might be pretty desolate on the calendar, which is usually a pretty big, intense month of the calendar, even if it is geographically concentrated in January. So, you know, this rule is about two-week modified quarantine seems to be the thing. Keeping players in sort of a group where they could just practice one other person for most of the time and five hours allowed out of their room a day. What do we, what do we make of all of this Australian Open stuff? There's also, you guys can bring up more fact, more aspects of this as you as you want in your answer. The other thing I'll mention, which has been tossed around, again, still not confirmed, this like $100,000 minimum first-round prize money for people paying for this ordeal the money issue uh australian open loves throwing money at players in various different ways reem what do you make of all this what are your reactions to this this current australian open landscape i think the fact that it keeps moving around and up until now they don't know what's going to happen means that all the other tournaments who are waiting to find out these people are totally getting screwed like it's 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 unbelievable that 
tournaments that are supposed to be happening in January or February, there's two months worth of tour events minus the two week Australian Open or whatever that are now unable, either they're not going to be able to be staged at all, or they're trying to figure out what's going to happen based on what Australia wants to do. And I'm not really sure that makes sense. Like, are they getting, comp unless they're getting direct compensation from Tennis Australia, who are already compensating the players with with insane stuff, like paying for their flights and paying for all their quarantines. and Chartered and, flights, maybe, yeah. Exactly. Like, they're chartering flights for the players. They're going to create a bubble for them so they can train in quarantine. All of this is at the Tennis Australia's expense. So how... I don't think they're going to be paying other tournaments that are going to be affected by this. Uh, it hasn't been mentioned. So I think it's very unfair because the smaller tournaments are ones that are already struggling and they're the ones at risk of just ceasing to exist. And the fact that it's... I mean, I've been trying to speak to the tournament director of the Dubai Duty Free Tennis Championships. They have a women's event and a men's event that's happened in like third week and fourth week of Feb. And I've been trying to reach him and I have spoken to him, but in terms of actually interviewing him, he keeps pushing it back. He keeps saying, let's wait a few days, a few days. And I know he's saying that because he doesn't know what to say. Like he, he has no idea what's going to happen. I think it's overkill, to be honest. Like the whole thing is like, how far are they willing to go to stage their event? Like, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. None of it makes sense to me. To be, I understand that everyone wants us. Players obviously want Islam to be played so that they can cash in. But if they're thinking about their tours and the survival of the tour and things like that, I don't know. It's it, I, I find it very dodgy. The the other thing I find sort of, and I'll get to you t next, Tamani. But the other thing I find sort of also a lot of, a lot of things I find off putting about this whole Australian Open situation. But also we are in month 11 of this thing this thing started back in march they have had a lot of time to figure this out this panda is 11 months old right it's walking it's doing things it's grown up and they still don't have it at all under control like they're still deciding things so late like if they had had to move to february and had figured that out earlier it would have given time for your you know your dubai's potentially your rotterdam's your all south american swing all those tournaments which are now being crushed by this this new cannonball landing in the february pool suddenly or being splashed around at least not crushed because um, i don't know how water works totally but if they if they gave them time those things could move to january and we just shuffle around that's kind of what wound up happening with the french open which made its unilateral declaration that it was moving and they decided that back in april or maybe even late March, that they were moving to September. And it gave time. And actually, they got kind of lucky because a lot of know. the Chinese tournaments that would have been impacted wound up getting separately canceled. So, you know, I, I uh, yeah, I, that's just to say, I, I feel like the Australian Open uh, could be doing a much better job with this. Tamani? Yeah, but that's more or less what I was going to say. You know, um, I think just the past year in general has been a reflection of how powerful the slams are compared with every other entity in tennis and we are, we already already knew that but it has been completely jarring to see you know first the french open and its move not just not the fact that it moved but the way it, it did it and then this where you know everyone is just waiting for this one tournament and i guess as you said you know that it's not like there's been some massive changes over the past kind of weeks in australia the, i think the lockdown lifted um, I think they had zero cases in like in the end of October. You know that we've heard Craig Tiley speaking about you know this issue and 
I guess try, I don't know. I guess trying to put pressure on them by constantly speaking to the, giving interviews, constantly giving interviews, um, and and his kind of his his initial claims have kind of just meekly kind of become lesser and lesser. You know, before that he was talking about you know quarantine hubs where it was like a kind of resort environment where everyone could walk around, and now it's completely different. So um, Craig yeah. Tiley said something was going to happen that didn't happen. Tumani? Really? The yeah. Craig Tiley was, was, was not a reliable narrator but for his Serena tournament? Williams committed to play in 2025? Andy Murray will definitely play this year's tournament. I mean, the number of things that Craig Tiley has, like, it's, like, honestly one of those, if if he was, if people cared about tennis, there'd be, like, a now this video about Craig Tiley. Yeah. Like, that kind of level of stuff. Yeah. But, with, yeah. With, but all of this, my point is mainly just that all of this, as you guys have kind of said, it's just, it's very jarring, and the fact that we're still waiting, and everything is being pushed back is yeah at some point it's too much for me i, I I'll, I'll put the i'll pick, phrase, phrase the question this way to you which i put on a, as a twitter poll and i think it was like 75 percent said yes roughly i asked the question like is it worth it to disrupt this much of the calendar to save one tournament to my answer we're talking about the outsized importance or power of the slams is this a net positive this whole thing or should the australian open which we should also can mention here was able to have an unfettered 2020 edition like they did they were the last slam that was able to have a real slam um should they have moved this many mountains and caused this many seismic activities in the in the calendar to have their 2021 tournament gruskin what do you think well to throw some facts loosely based here, you know, us young people would like to throw facts at a problem as well. I know that's unusual. You know, we get a we get a rough typecast, but we do like facts every so often. And just a quick Google search. Yeah, I'm defending all young people. Any of you young listeners on NCR, I, I know why you listened. I get it. Ben speaks for those Gen Xers. He's a little bit older than us, but oh, we I'm still respect Gen them. X. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I just I just trying to make Reem make a face, and she did, so I succeeded with my point there. But some quick numbers you look overall. Uh, obviously, the Grand Slam, as you guys said, the most important event in the calendar. But you know, as of right now, there are two hundred thousand daily cases of COVID in the United States. As of right now, there are sixteen thousand daily cases, I believe, uh, in Britain. There are fourteen thousand cases in France. There are eleven cases yesterday. There are eleven cases in Australia. Eleven. So clearly what they're doing is working. And that was always going to be the sticking point for so many of these players is what are the conditions that you're forcing me to come to to compete at this event? And it sounds like they were able to negotiate it to where it's favorable, to where they can still get their training in, to where they're not going to have to sit in a hotel room for two weeks before going out and then having to play an event right away. But you talk about sacrificing the calendar. I think the lesson we have all learned from every sporting world, whether it's domestic ones here in America, whether it's international sports you have to do things regionally you have to build a bubble and the problem in tennis and you guys know more about this than I do and you look at some of these numbers of what it's going to cost the Australian Open the money's just not there like in an ideal world you would say hey all of you go to Australia and we're just going to keep you there for three months and that's fine the cases are lowest there we'll just play a bunch of 250s and they're called 250s now I believe for the WTA tour so you know 250s for both the men and the women but you know tennis Australia just can't afford to do that. And so, I don't know. What's the alternative? Keep the usual schedule? Have them travel a bunch? Like, I hate the idea of that still. I would like to keep sports in a bubble because I think that's the position where it thrives the most. But, Reem, I feel like that's just not possible. Well, they don't have the time. Basically, the problem is if they... 
I, I'm all for having tennis regional at the moment. We've spoken about that a lot on NCR, uh, whether it is uh, if they're going to be playing in indoors in Europe, don't have Rotterdam and Marseille and Montpellier or whatever group them on one place, etc. And the same with Australia. They actually said at the beginning, well, you know what? There aren't going to be any events outside the state of Victoria. We're all going to keep it inside Victoria, which made sense. But the problem is now they don't have the weeks. The players have yeah. to go and quarantine. They're not allowed. So one of the important things for them is that the players are allowed to train during quarantine, but they cannot compete in a tournament during quarantine. So they're losing two weeks where they cannot compete. And then basically they have one week and that if if it's true that they want them to go, to go mid January and then quarantine for two weeks and then have one week before the Australian Open, when are you, you maximum you're going to have one build up event and it's going to be on the eve of a slam. So you the problem there's just not enough weeks and it's ending up messing up the entire first two months of the regular tour events. To what Kreskin was saying about the context of the how different COVID is in. Australia now it's obviously that's a big cult I said that the whole last episode is basically about that but it's worth reiterating like they're on a completely different yeah. COVID journey than pretty much the rest of the world bar New Zealand their neighbor and frenemy and they were you know and so if anything I think it's also as much as this because this February talk is still tentative I think it's also still very precarious I do think if there is any sort of other flare-up that happens in Victoria if, if cases even reach you know double digits again like and it's completely out of the range of the U.S. where we have six digits. But if they even reach two digits in Victoria again, you know, I could see the Australian Open getting canceled because then they would have to probably go on some sort of quieter, uh, sorry, tighter quarantine. You know, you see people like and also don't know how I mean, as much as this is like we see this as players getting concessions, it's also not going to be fun for them. Like still like being locked in a room 19 hours a day. Like that's not fun. Like even if they do get some yard time to go play some tennis with one chosen fellow inmate like that's that's still a rough thing and we saw Benoit Pair, ironically being the person to sort of have some complaints about this on Twitter already after he was the one who was the main positive test at the U.S. Open you know I I don't know what they're I don't know how many players are going to, or how about put it this way if let's say like a Rotterdam and a Dubai and a even the South American swing if they say hey we're gonna hold tournaments too I could, and you don't have to quarantine for two weeks. I could see a bunch of players potentially opting out of the Australian Open. Mm -hmm. I, I think you know that's maybe one thing we haven't talked about or hasn't been discussed. But like the other tournaments, don't need to defer to the Australian Open. They can still, I believe, and I'm guessing they would get exemptions because of these extraordinary circumstances. But I'm guessing if Rotterdam wanted to hold at its normal mid-February dates, they probably could, and they would probably still get you know they probably wouldn't get as I'm sure they wouldn't get as good a field as usual, but they might get you know a somewhat respectable field and you know top seed robin hassa or something uh so yeah whatever whatever it would be i i just think there's i'm there's still a lot, it's it's not everything is a compromise these days and i do think it's a certain point players especially top players are going to lose energy to do this like you saw we heard like sitsipas at the world tour finals talking about how miserable he was you know not being able to go out and explore and be him his hawkish self uh during the this whole year and like you know if he doesn't want to do the the 19 hours for 14 days thing i'm not going to begrudge any player doesn't want to do that i spoke to raunich about that too and he was because i was like you guys needed to do this traveling bubble thing but only from like september till november that's not a long period of time but next season if it already starts that way and let's say you have at least six seven months of that best case scenario to be honest uh 
do you think you're going to be able to play a lot of tournaments? He's like, I can't. He's like, I need freedom. I need to, like, I didn't even, and, and Raonic is someone who is very well aware of the dangers of COVID. Like he, he was super careful. He hasn't seen his parents all year because he's scared to see them. Like, what? Notably declined the Adria Tour invite, Militarana. Yeah, he, he's been super careful, as, as uh, and we can see the evidence with, from his hair, right? Like, that's the biggest proof, yeah. I guess. Um, and he was like, I, yeah, definitely next season, if I can skip certain tournaments, I will, because I, I, it's difficult for me to keep doing that. So, And I'm sure so many other players feel the same way. The only one who didn't hate the bubble was Maria Sakari, who was like, it helps me focus. <laughs> She's like, it helps me focus on the tennis. So she didn't mind it. But in general, yeah, I, I can imagine if, especially if it's tournaments like Dubai and Doha, who kind of have the money, they like, they're, they're wealthy tournaments for their status. They can be like, okay, we'll offer a little bit, a bigger prize pot and just come to our tournament. I can imagine something like that happening, especially that Dubai is completely open. It's open for tourists. The hotels are open. Everything is open. There are no restrictions. Dubai have about, like the UAE in general has about like over a thousand cases a day, but they're operating on the fact that we our hospitals can handle it. We have a lot of rules. We're fining people for not wearing masks properly. We're doing the da, da da but we need the tourism. So they're completely open. It's interesting also the, this idea that we were saying about like the 2020 was a very different challenge or very different you know, roadmap than 2021, which this whole episode, and we'll get on different threads of it, will be about the uncertainty of 2021 and what we want from 2021. But when this sort of schedule, especially for WTA player who didn't have all the fall events afterwards or any really the opportunities mostly, the challenge was very different in 2020. It was basically, it was a tour that was more or less bookended by two slams, right? The, you know, the sort of Cincinnati, New York bubble and one end and then two weeks and then the French Open and then you were kind of done, right? It was kind of a, a bit of a sprint or like an 800 meters or something in, in track terms. It wasn't like unbearably long. And getting on a whole nother lap of this thing, I feel like it's been mentally a lot tougher. I do think the mental health sort of angle of this is is going to be rough for players. And, you know, people are not going to be at their best. We've seen a lot of players already just not be at their best, you know, mentally during this time. And it's going to be even more attrition and, and struggle on that side. Tamani, any, anything you want to add on any of these points? Yeah. I guess, guess just going back to, like, the initial thing of whether this is worth it, I think they're, like, I mean, different interests. Like, for players, hey, maybe, I mean, they're certainly worth it for players who want to get the prize money from the Australian Open, and maybe they're not cut out for playing week by week and will kind of schedule more, you know, fewer events and whatever. But, and for for tournaments, it's, I mean, as you've already said, it's not worth it for the other tournaments that are waiting around and that who knows what will happen, Who you know. And so, I don't know, I think they're just like competing interests right now and everyone has a different answer to that question. Ruskin. Yeah, just to that point, it, we brought it up earlier, is the money there? Uh, Brett McCormick for Sports Business Journal has written about this before, but I think it's, you know, for for NBA, NFL here in the United States, which, sorry, that's the perspective I know best, uh, they could afford to have these bubbles because their TV contracts are absorbent in amounts of money, and it pays for the $200 million they have to do in facility uptake and, you know, cleaning and making sure everything is up to standards and following protocol and, like, professional tennis just cannot 
cannot do that. It, it absolutely cannot. And so, you know, will those events, you know, I think the number for 250s, it's like 12 to 14 percent of their revenue comes from TV. It's like 16 to 18 for 500s, 22 to 25, depending on if you have the Larry Ellison contract at Indian Wells or not. And it's just like for, you know, that's just not a thing for so many of these different 250 events. And to another point, uh, I think you raised earlier, Ben, if you're, you know, the number 88 player in the world and you can go to America and there are three challengers available for you in the month of January and then you can go play the South American clay swing in February, you probably do that. Like, that's significantly easier for you. Not if you're top 50, but if you're, like, the number eight in that 60 to 80 range, the points end up, you know, if you're only playing two events in Australia versus six events in North and South America, it evens out. So I I completely agree. I think it'll be really interesting to see the way these players, uh, what route they choose to go. I think it's, you mentioned, like, the, the earnings and the different financial realities. And Tamani mentioned, again, like, the sort of outsized power and and you know, impact of the slams on this. And I do think this is accelerating a lot of already existing things. And we've already, you know, people have talked about how much to, it was already really tough for a 250 to break even. You know, they don't get the players to get the sort of big name fans and they don't have the TV contracts that are the same. And, and it's, just, it's just tougher uh, to, to survive. And I do think that the tour is getting more and more top heavy and at a faster, faster rate now um, with the sort of swelling we're seeing it, with the shine open and, and everything else sort of, withering away and and you know this is again why i think one of the biggest problems and this will go to sort of more prescriptive for 2021 one of my biggest problems with how tennis is handling all this and this is again like reem said things i've mentioned before but like the the failure of imagination to not do something besides holding single elimination tournaments in different city every week that's like still what tennis is trying to do it's still the model tennis is trying to make work and it just does not make sense at all. We're talking about something like, you know, like facilities maintenance or like, let's say, like, I know Washington, Washington's my home city tournament. So like, it's a 500, they're financially healthier than, or get a lot more revenue, at least than a lot of 250s would from TV and other things like that. But they have to do so much money every year to get that site up and running to like fix all the rusted stuff that's, you know, corroded over the past year to redo the surface, the courts to do put up lights, to put up, you know, hospitality tents, all sorts of different things. There's major, major costs in getting that set up and running every year. And they only get the benefit of all the investment for a week. And then it moves on to the next city. And so long as you're not having anywhere near full strength fans and having it be an attraction, like you got, I just think you got to get off this carousel and you start, you got to start setting up, you know, Tennis Island somewhere and have it be a place, uh, shout out to Victoria Kiesa and David Kane of, of the Tennis <laughs> Island, but you gotta, you gotta have it be somewhere where you can have a permanent site or a semi-permanent site where you can go for, you know, three, four months at a time and, and play like the entire clay swing in one place or play, you know, the entire sort of first third of this, of this calendar, which is usually, which is very predominantly hard courts of some kind or another, whether that's in Dubai, if Dubai want to take the entire first three months of the calendar, including your Indian Wells in Miami. That's fine. I, and I just think the complete lack of cooperation and failure of imagination, everyone holding on so tightly to their little tiny piece of the pie, and they're not willing to do anything bigger, I think it's ultimately going to cause a lot of downfall for tennis. And we're going to start seeing attrition. I mean, the other thing timing wise is that we're coming up and when we get to Indian Wells, we'll be coming up for the first time on tournaments that didn't get to happen in 2020, right? tournaments it's a big difference between missing one event and missing yeah. two in a row and so when we start seeing your tournaments like you know charleston monterey houston you know marrakesh or whatever else is sort of coming up in that part of the calendar and you're 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 
March, April, May tournaments that can't go a second time, they're going to be just folding or, you know, that's going to, they're going to yeah. die. You, yeah. you can maybe survive one year with creativity and hustle, but two is, is too much to ask. And so, yeah. And right. The math doesn't work out for, for, for TV money to be enough to float those 250 events and, you know, and TV ratings also are down. I feel like TV, you know, tennis ratings were way down at the US Open, at least we know, um, on American TV. So yeah, all this is just that's a long way to say it just looks bleak, Reem. I have a feeling the 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 part about not planning ahead is you could hear it even from the players and a lot of the people in tennis where they're like, hopefully twenty twenty one all this will be over. Like I don't know where they got this impression from. I I mean I know Steve Simon didn't say that when I was speaking with him. He was like, we know twenty twenty one is going to be rough. But when when you speak with the individuals and tournament directors and whatever and players and everyone's like oh hopefully 2021 is going to be fine i'm like yeah but that's like right around the corner like how is the, how is anything going to change i think everyone's like we're going to wait for the vaccine as soon as the vaccine is there where everything's going to be fine and things don't really work that way and for them it's such a hassle because as we say tennis is so fragmented and everyone's always thinking of self-interest and stuff like that they're like it's impossible right now to unite people who knows? I would love maybe behind closed doors there are tournaments that are talking to each other that we don't know are talking to each other. Uh, maybe Indian Wells and Miami are talking to each other. Maybe Dubai and Doha. Are I mean, Dubai and Doha is tricky because politically the countries are are at odds, so they don't even have a direct flight between them. So everyone I know, a lot of players, a lot of WTA players, were saying they were hoping Dubai and Doha can be in one place, um, but there's other things that would stop that from happening. So. I think because the obstacles are so many, they were it was just like wishful thinking. Oh, next year is going to be fine. I mean, they they the ATP announced that they're or I, th- I don't know if they announced it or not, but they plan on getting the rankings back to normal in March, right? That means they think that things are going to be fine March onwards. That there are actually going to be tournaments and players are going to turn. So it's all wishful thinking, and I think now it's kind of like a reality check because it's December and nothing is set in stone. That was me. One, I think we could do a whole separate episode on the rankings, but that's that's gonna be something that comes to reality at some other point. And you're right, Reem. I, I would like to see that sort of consolidation, like you mentioned. I think you would want maybe Indian Wells, Miami, very obvious pair of tournaments that could consolidate into one place. Probably, presumably, Indian Wells have the more permanent facility that requires less activation buildup. And then you throw want to throw in, you know, Acapulco and. Charleston and uh, Houston and Monterey and like you could and even like heck throw in you know Lyon or some of the other like WTA Lyon I'm thinking like other Kuala Lumpur isn't still around is it but like things you know like other sort of like tournaments in that time of year to put in one place heck the, the Fed Cup that's supposed to be in Budapest you could put in Indian Wells for a year like do something to make it like really like actually take these steps and actually let go of your thing and send it to whether it's Indian Wells. I think Indian Wells just structurally makes a lot of sense and has the weather to get things done and whatever else. But yeah, I, there's just so much room for stuff. And the, we see the only signs we see of, of change really happening are kind of the opposite. We see these power grabs. We see Australian Open going unilaterally towards February. We see Madrid announcing that it's going to expand to two weeks, which has been rumbling to do for a long time uh, to be sort of a 10 day type tournament like uh, Indian Wells in Miami, even though uh, no one, I really don't know why. Does anyone know why that is a good idea? Does anyone see a value in that? It's only the the WTA right now. So it's that they've moved the WTA part of the tournament forward. So like 
Ah, you know, so it's like the, Dubai the, now. It's a week in a, a, a WTA week in an ATP. No, but they were still be. They were still. I think it's. I think it's still like in Dean Wells. I think where it's like the WTA starts like a day or two ahead. The the WTA, I think, like the qualifying draw starts on like Tuesday now, and then the men's qualifying draw starts on a Friday. So it's just weirdly staggered. And so the WTA final is going to be like in the middle of the men's tournament. I mean, which is just we annoying. all we all know how disinterested Madrid has been in their WTA product. Yeah. So, so. what what do you think, Tony? Is there is there signs for hope, or is it, or is, are people just repeating mistakes? Yeah, I, I think no. I, I agree with you. And the the giant thing is that right at the beginning of this, when tennis came back, we saw that with with Cincinnati and the US Open, we we saw that what happens when kind of the tournament can two tournaments can cooperate and you know they they were you know as far as, far as i know they were kind of driving with the the, the staff at cincinnati drove to yeah. new york with you know like their banners and things like that their and, signage they brought their yeah, signage to new york yeah exactly so so like creative kind of decisions like that and, and that yeah. ended up well for them i think and so yeah I, I agree it's been just frustrating to see everyone just kind of stuck in their way and and you know not really waiting not really you know, tr- trying to get through it. Yeah. What do you make of all this, Greskin? Then we're gonna move after this. We're gonna move on to some more free association, free fire, hopes and dreams and wishes for twenty twenty one. But what do you make your last thoughts on on what tennis is and isn't doing right now? Yeah, I, it's more just the lack. Oh, well, you know, we always make fun of players find out things now on Twitter. It's like kind of welcome to the new world, right? Like that's sort of how announcements happen. When an announcement is going to make, when an organization makes an announcement, they're going to tweet out that statement. And I don't know whether it's just the rise and fall of the PTPA, how precipitous it was. I don't know if it's the fact that you see, you know, with Alex Zverev, the fact that there's just no protocol whatsoever, and you could apply that to Nicholas Bachelosvili as well. The fact that there's just no even, no even acknowledgement of, hey, these two face serious accusations off the court, and we're just going to let them play through it. It's just yeah. the lack we'll of that, collect, yeah. yeah, the lack of collecting bargaining ag- agreement, the lack of collaboration between players, organizations sponsors it's it's a, it's very frustrating i suppose as the resident young person you know the words like <laughs> synergy are thrown a lot thrown around a lot and there's just not a lot of synergy right now in tennis but there is there, there is thankfully a lot of sinner yeah i wanted to i wanted to to tell just go ahead, yeah alex it's not just uh, we find out from organizations on twitter the the second solution is if lucas Laco. <laughs> tweets out. <laughs> Le- the ATP leaks like crazy. Yes. He's it our is... WikiLeaks situation. <laughs> I never followed him before this year. I've only followed him this year because you know what? He gives us news. So thank you. It is great Lato. because like you know that like I, the second an email hits like Gastow Elias's inbox, <laughs> we're seeing it. <laughs> like honestly. And that really does show, you know, I think it's the thing that you can say, you know, about the Trump administration, obviously. Like it's not the sign of a healthy organization when it leaks like crazy, yeah. right? Yeah. Like you don't, people aren't trusting, people aren't buying in. And you certainly see that from ATP. You do not see the WTA leaking like this whatsoever. This is an mm-hmm. ATP issue and it's not getting better. That's because they, they blocked Tara Moore for sure. They probably removed Tara Moore from their mailing list. It's, a, it's mailing a joke list. though. There's like a race to leak news. It's like, oh, I'm going to be the cool player because I leaked this first. And by the way, to any player who's listening, keep doing it. Like it helps yeah. us a lot, a lot, a lot. But it's hilarious. It, it's quite the oxymoron. And the other, the other thing I'll say on this is that just going back to Indy Wells 2020, uh, 
which got canceled. And a lot of players were like, oh, we saw this over Twitter. It's like, well, you saw it on Twitter because you were on Twitter. Like, you got an email <laughs> contemporaneously to this announcement going out, if not 30 seconds before. Like, you, you know, anyway, so a lot of players were like, oh, it's so offensive we only find things out on Twitter. Like, that's that's true if, like, you know, Adrian Wodger or whatever says you got traded and you find out from him. That, that stuff does happen in the NBA. But, like, uh, players are getting emails. They're just not reading them, as we know from shout out to maria sharapova <laughs> yeah uh, just, just to ahead, kind Tony. of just follow up i think alex kind of hit the nail on the head with just like in in all these different aspects of what has happened over the past kind of nine months that the tour has shown us the sport has shown itself to just not be very dynamic and to just kind of to you know not be able to react and to adapt and to to change and i guess you know it, it should also be said that you know the, the last season actually in some ways it was better than a, a lot of people thought in the sense that a lot of tournaments were able to come back. There were some new events that were able to slot in, particularly ATP events, so fair play to that. But, you know, at the same time, we've we've, we've very much seen the limits of, of tennis, I think. Well, this is what you were talking about, Timani, if you want to expand on that, before we were talking, trying before the show, about, like, tennis's failure, and this goes to what Alex was saying about you know, alluding to Zverev and, and Basilashvili and domestic violence cases both of them are involved in. Basilashvili is, I believe, currently in court, and I haven't gotten heard. I've been looking for updates and haven't seen them for what's been going on with that case within December, but it was supposed to start a trial in December of some kind, um, and we're recording this on December 3rd. Uh, you know, their tennis is, whether it's, I think, you know, Gimmelstab or whether it's uh, the Zverev-Basilashvili stuff or whether it's COVID at large, you know, I think tennis has really not risen to the occasion whenever real life, you know, quote unquote, real life issues or real stuff comes in. And I, I will say, I do think that tennis did a better than I expected job largely, or I guess Cincinnati, actually speaking of Cincinnati, the Naomi Osaka moment, I think was like arguably an exception to this. I think they they actually handled that pretty well, USTA and, and Cincinnati and the tours. Um, but otherwise, not high marks for for this tour as a sort of real world place. And it's just showing the insularity of it again and the sort of <laughs> bubble to use that word that, that tennis players and people operate in. Um, Tamani, I'm sure you've written some tremendous column about this already, but what do you make of, of tennis's failure to to be a sort of, you know, good citizens? Yeah, I mean I, I think I think Reem kind of underlined it perfectly when we were chatting about how you know, we we're we're in, tennis play, tennis tournaments are in bubbles now. Tennis players are in bubbles now, and kind of, but in but tennis is in a bubble, and the you know just I don't know just just the way the tour just fails to you know players are out of you know they're traveling from tournaments to tournaments. If it, it feels like they're not quite interacting with the real world in a way, and I think we've seen that kind of over the past nine months how different tennis is from other sports you know that there have been incidents in say soccer over here or or other sports but it seems that so much has happened in such a such a small amount of time and I think I don't know I just think it reflects kind of how different tennis is I guess if that makes sense I I feel that what happened basically the last whatever, nine months, or I don't know how long it's been, honestly, uh, is that it, it, it exposed 
it's it's really exposed tennis to its truest self which is how selfish it is how how out of touch it is uh, you speak like you mentioned the Naomi Osaka thing with with the Cincinnati and you have Novak Djokovic who was pissed that that happened right oh, that's the reports yeah yeah he said he said like we found out like he literally said that in his press conference like this shouldn't happen that way we found out find out suddenly I'm not playing a final the 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 lack of understanding of a big picture has always been a problem but now it's been exposed to the fullest from every single angle the um, holding people accountable is something so alien in this sport whether it yes. was the gimmel stop thing whether it's everything and now whenever someone mentions mentions accountability it's like oh wow this is something totally new for tennis you know the fact that uh, for example i remember early on during lockdown we spoke about this ben like even in like premier league football when a player had a haircut when he was supposed to be in lockdown, he got fined by his club, right? Because there are rules and there are certain yeah. things that even if this the season is not happening at the moment and, and this is behavior that's happening away from the league, you are still being held accountable to certain to how you behave away from the pitch, right? And we don't have that in tennis. It's it's obvious because Daselajvili's case has been going on forever. We've heard about it for a long time. Uh, obviously, the Zverev situation wasn't taken seriously, at least for uh, what took them two weeks to put out a statement. Even put or out whatever. a little statement, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And it's not just with domestic violence. It's really in everything. And then also, it's very evident from the reaction of the players when they are trying to be held accountable. Look at how the the, the pair of seven or 11 or whatever, how many they were, look how pissed they were. Look how they felt that they were in jail, not understanding yeah. the bigger picture, not understanding that there's a pandemic. It's all it's all about me, 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 me. And it's, it's uh, the whole Adrian Tour situation where until this day, Novak insists, oh, my intentions were good, so that's fine. So all of this has been exposed because of the extreme situation we're in. And I think tennis, it's coming. It's like a reckoning at the moment. Like you either react the right way, start thinking about new bylaws, start thinking about new, introducing yeah. things to the rule book, start telling people, stop operating like you're a niche, tiny sport. Operate yeah, yeah. like you are a major sport. And, and because... You can't, you're like the NBA and the NFL and all the other examples that we found that introduced domestic violence policies. Maybe they didn't have them all the time, but they were introduced. Again, this is what major sports are doing. So again, uh, the problem is just the last thing I'm going to say about that is that um, reading the piece that you sent from ABC Australia or something, Mm -hmm. that was, I agreed with it. Most of what was written in that piece because it was basically about how Tennis Australia has been pandering to players for a very long time and it's still doing the same thing. And you talk about the yeah. food briefly. Sorry, <laughs> I want to make sure you mentioned the food situation. Yeah, Tennis yeah, Australia yeah. Had. So that remi- it reminded me of a few years ago before the tournament. We were having a press conference with Rick Tiley, and he so happily announced that this year we're giving players. Free unlimited food. Because, you know, like in tournaments, we have money on our badges and so do players and their coaches with a certain limit. Obviously, they have a generous like kind of stipend for the day or whatever. But there's always a limit to how much food you can you can get per day for you and your coach. And then 
that year, Karaktaili very happily announced, oh, everyone can have, all the players can have unlimited food. And they ran out like two days later, like two days into the tournament, because I could see the players packing boxes and boxes of to-go food, taking it back to their hotels or whatever. And these are players who can... These are players who can afford to to like buy entire restaurants, right? And and I'm and everyone is doing it. I'm not kidding. Like everyone's like, oh, free food, and of course they run out. And it was such an unnecessary thing. Why? Why do? And and meanwhile, the press, for example, they're taking away our car privileges uh, when we leave at four in the morning. They're take they're they're giving us money on a badge that wouldn't even we can't even get one meal with it. And it was it was always this insane, just unbelievable. Literally, pandering is the right word. So um, now they're doing it with that. And I'm thinking, how are the players going to feel that there is anything different and there's a pandemic and stuff when the tournaments, the tournament like Tennis Australia is not making them feel that there is anything exceptional going on. They're going out of their way to charter flights for them and do this and argue with the government and grant them exceptions and this and that. And they're still going to complain as well. I bet you they will find a way to complain. Yeah, yeah. I'll get you to say, but I want to say one thing I was thinking before the show. Like tennis players manage to be both in some fair, like accurately hard done by, and like underpaid for certain things, and also unbelievably spoiled. Like the amount of things they expect. Then we're talking about top hundred players. Like expect handed to them. Like the amount of like things they feel the right to complain about. Like oh my gosh, my car wasn't at the airport right when I landed. Like oh my gosh, like and they're making so much money out of these tournaments, and they're just like not reinvesting any of it. They're wanting more and more and more free. And obviously, Tennis, I'll show you this article. I'll put it in the description of the show, a link to it by Richard Hines talking about, you know, the freeloading that happened and how tennis players still are ungrateful or, or ungrateful is maybe an unfair word, but still aren't like super loyal to the Australian Open. They're, they're, their loyalty has not been won or bought through through all this money over the years. That's why I go what you say, and then I, have a, then I have a longer rant to get on. Sure. <laughs> yeah, just going to, you know, Reem, like, correctly said that this should be a reckoning, but... It should be, but uh, my hopes are low. My expectations are low, you know. As you said, Djokovic did the Adria tour and then he stressed his good intentions and tried to move on. You know, Zverev and team travelled around the world when they should have been, you know, quarantining and then kind of just tried to move on. You know, the ATP, again, it took two weeks for them to to send the statement and then it was just basically it's none of our business. You know, do I think they... Should they learn the lessons? Yeah. Do, do I think they will? Do I think there'll be change? No. <laughs> well, here th- th- that sort of feeds into what my dream is. Like, I think tennis is very... By the way, tennis, sorry to her. She's getting dragged for this episode. <laughs> but but um, there needs to be some sort of, like, hostile takeover or something. There needs to be somebody to come in and, like, be the commissioner, be, like, the benevolent dictator of tennis and really clean things up. Because no one, because this, the Seven Kingdoms are not keeping their houses in order. <laughs> it's not working. Uh, nobody's coming off looking well. No one's, like, acting in best interest of others. Weirdly, I'm not, like, uh, people who listen to the show, and they certainly don't think that I'm in the tank for them. But, like, the USTA, where they think, is, like, the one that did, like, a decent enough job with their whole situation. And I had, was talking mad shit about them for much of 2020 for still pushing on during this rising pandemic. And I'm still ambivalent about whether or not the US Open was a good idea or not, even if it was, by their measures, a huge success. And I, I'm going to completely acknowledge that it was by what they were going for. Yeah, I, it's just, it's all very, very broken. And the sort of lack of accountability and the lack of rules, something, it's all it's all just so incredibly immature. And this is a sport that's been a pro sport now as we're celebrating, you know, this anniversary for like 50 years, right? And it's still acting brand new. 
it's still <laughs> like just like people are getting away with stuff and are just not falling in line and it's still so disorganized and it's still so dysfunctional and you know yikes that's that's my thought Gruskin, what 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 do the youth think <laughs> i mean my final question to you guys about this would be and i guess it's a bit of a change but i'm curious if you were stuck in Australia for those two weeks, you get to pick one player to train with for the duration of the time. <laughs> who is the player you are picking and why? I want to know who Tumani picks first. I, I need, I need that. Uh, <laughs> okay, I, I, I have an answer. I have an answer. I, I, I will, I will say uh, Shea Suey. They keep it interesting. <laughs> just because? Just you like the game? I mean, stuff. what am I? What do I want to see? Like the same ball over and over again for five days? <laughs> Absolutely not. I want to be kept on my toes. I want to be kept entertained. Shea Suey. Easy, I'm going to be predictable and say Ons Jabur for multiple <laughs> reasons. She's going to be super entertaining. I watch a lot of her practices and it's always fun. But also her team are so fun. I get along great with her husband and her coach. So I feel like it's going to be that that would be fun. I also like if you see her Instagram, like during her preseason training right now, they're having so much fun. They're always like <laughs> they're the kind of team who when we went together to the Great Wall of China, they had speakers with them and they played music on top of the Great Wall and started dancing. So that's the team I want to be around. <laughs> Packed for a party. Okay. And, and my, mine would be Ashley Barty because I want to know how to achieve so much while doing so little. <laughs> Explain and, that. And what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Well, because she's racking up weeks at number one, and she's rising. Oh yeah, up yeah, and... yeah. <laughs> she's, she's. I mean, I think she's at some point she's going to pass like Wozniacki on like seventy something weeks, and she's chilling at home. I, I love it. I know pe- people are angry about it. I, I think it's amazing. Heck Hilarious. of a scam if you can get it. Heck of a scam. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah. yeah, I, I do. I do. Who, yeah. Alex, who uh, would you pick? Uh, it's a tough. The answer is all of them. Like, there's not a single situation you could throw me in, and I'd That's be like, "Not how no. this works at all." Yeah, but <laughs> if I had to pick, and Ben, well, wait, it's yeah, you're right. I don't make the rules to the question, Rama. It's your show. I'm sorry. You're right. That's not how this works. Sabalanka, because I'm just like, what do you do? Like, what? What? I, I just, I just want to know more. I'm just like, I, I'm always fascinated. The ups, the downs, the lefts, the rights, all of it. It's fascinating to me. Two weeks up close, I'd be like, I'm gonna write an incredible profile, and then send it to Reem to edit to make actually good. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, the brown nosing. You're making yeah. me look right, so want... good. You're making me <laughs> no, look no. so good. That... Bring him every I... time, please, Ben. <laughs> I tell you, I tell you, this is just me matchmaking here. This all is right. why you so... don't show me to Courtney. You're like, she's not ready. You yeah. don't want any of that. <laughs> no, absolutely not. I, I, I do like the like the Stand mixture back. between complimenting us and then calling everyone old. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Both respecting his elders in his own way. Yeah, I, I do what I can. Figuring it was probably best to break this roundtable into more digestible pieces because it got pretty long. We're going to end this episode here and have the second half of our discussion out shortly with more from Reem, Tumani, Alex, and myself, including discussion of the recent WTA rebrand, media access shortfalls, especially during quarantine, wondering how Roger Federer will do with playing in front of empty stadiums, and Tumani's impressions of having been at live tennis for the first time in a while at the tour finals recently in London at the O2 Arena in empty O2 arena and some more other assorted fun and some more assorted complaining. Uh, Our 2021 vision, it turns out is often fairly myopic. That being said, we are fully rose colored and delighted about all the wonderful support we've gotten from all of y'all on this 2020 on our Patreon, which we hope continues into 2021. 
We are at patreon.com slash no challenges remaining. And we're delighted that we have two new backers since our last episode to announce Wendy Matsumura and Pam Shriver. So thank you very much to Wendy and Pam, a longtime friend, frequent guest, or not frequent, two-time guest, Pam Shriver. And then two backers and longtime friends of the show increase their pledge for December. And they are Shola Amusa, aka Dr. Shoals, and Anna Valinder. So thank you to both of them. And since it's the first show of the month of December, we always, on the first show of the month, thank our Patreon on-tour-level backers, and they are Aluko Hope, David Ebersoff, Ken Solomon, Kathleen Sharkey, Danielle Hartzell, Horatio Silva, Annie Kim, Russell Baker, J.B. Wogan, James Hindle, Jillian Dobson, Helene DeVitt, Andrew, The Body Serve Podcast, Andrew Eckel, Steph Chow, Greer Millard, Brett Halsey, Ava Marshalkova, John Fisher, Rumdwalv Wong, Kate S., Jeremy Blackstock, Dermot Harkin, and Lori Porter. So thank you to all of them. And then we also have Patreon Slam Champ Backers we thank on every episode. And they are Jean Simeon, Betty, Jonathan Weinbaum, Chuang Nguyen, Liz Kennel, Mary Carrillo, Leo Williams, Susanna W., Audrey Wellens, Sean Mulroy, and Antonio Maycumber, as well as our GOAT Backers, Mike, J-O-D, Nicole Copeland, and new to this category, Anna Valinder and Pam Shriver. So thank you to the GOATs. Thank you to everybody else. So like I said, part two of this roundtable will be out shortly. And there will actually be a third bonus part of the roundtable on our Patreon as well. Uh, and then then also in this upcoming week, I'll be recording our more or less annual Remember When episode with Courtney. So if you have suggestions for things that you remember that stand out, fun, quirky things, mostly from the wild year that was 2020 in tennis, tweet them at us at ncr underscore tennis or email us no challenges remaining at gmail.com and Courtney and I will add those to our lists of remembrances. So we'll be back with part two again in a couple days. Be well, guys. Rest up for 2021. We'll see you later. Bye. Bye. Twenty twenty one, what do you think about me? I could wait a year, but I shouldn't wait three.